Well, I, uh, I did see that next week the temperature is going to be 32 degrees. Balmy, sweaty. Uh, that's, a, that's a difference of, what is that, 50? It's like 50 degree different. 50 degrees. Um, we're going to fill up the baptismal, uh, have a little pool party. Um, just kidding. I learned at a young age not to swim in the baptismal. I got a spanking for that when I was young. That is a true story. And I will never do that again. Uh, all right. Here we are. Week seven of Jesus is Greater. Looking at the book of Hebrews, really excited about, about where we're going today. But just to Hebrews is a hard book just to, I mean, you, you could. You could just kind of jump into the, the next passage that we're going through. The, the problem is the author of Hebrews is just constantly building uh, their argument uh, upon their previous arguments. And so I don't want to just pass over that too fast and too quickly. I want, I want to really dig in where we've we been and yet without really uh, spending too much time on it. And so, again, we've talked about this, Jesus is greater, looking at the book of Hebrews, kind of this idea, and even with this image that we have with this uh, representative of kind of being in the Old Testament and, and, and coming out of this cave. And although it's, it's safe, it feels secure, there's, there's more out, outside of this cave of the Old Testament that is revealed in Christ. And, and again, Jesus said this, and I've, every single time I've been up here uh, preaching, I uh, have read these two passages from John and Luke where Jesus says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Uh, in the beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Paul, would you mind just turning me down a little bit? I'm just getting a little bit more feedback than I like on my S's. I don't uh, articulate very well, and so it just annoys. You probably can't hear that online, but it drives me nuts. Okay, um, so again, going back, we've seen this language of, of hold fast, don't drift away, hold fast to the truth, hold fast to what is Christ, of, of a child opening up a present, and we're not looking at the present anymore, we're not looking at the wrapping, the pretty box, we're looking at the gift that's inside the box, we're looking at, at Jesus. Uh, I, I said that week one, my prayer, my prayer for us is just that we would be able to see Jesus more clearly in these next couple months uh, as we dig into the book of Hebrews and, and I know for me, I have. I have been so excited every week that I, I just read the passage and go, there's Jesus. I mean, he's, it, it's, it's beautiful uh, how clearly Jesus is proclaimed. That just look, at we would see Jesus and turn your eyes upon Jesus. And this old preacher and the lights go out and says, preacher, we can see Jesus in the darkness, right? That's just been every single week. That Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And so again, just where we've been, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, but look at this. So I, I shared this slide two weeks ago. Uh, and since then, we've, I've added two more because I preached on Jesus is greater than Moses. And then Paul preached last week. Uh, and I'm, I'm so appreciative of Paul's Valentine's Day. So I'm going to get a little sappy up here. Um, but I'm just appreciative of Paul. A lot of you probably don't know this, but maybe you do. He's on staff here. Yeah. He mentioned that last week. Um, as a pastoral uh, resident, and I'm just thankful for him being able to give me uh, a break. And I've got paternity leave uh, coming up here pretty soon, uh, six weeks from now. And so Paul's going to be stepping up, and I'm, I'm thankful for he and Josh uh, Darmola, our elders here at Hope Lower Town, and the joy that they, they bring me. Uh, anyways, okay, so Jesus is great in the Old Testament prophets. You've heard, you've heard of all these different stories, but they're all about Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. Angels are really cool, but Jesus is greater. You meet. 
right? Jesus, gospel is greater than Old Testament law. We looked at Jesus being 100% human and 100% God, that he was tempted like us, and yet he defeats temptation in a way that we can't even begin to imagine because he feels the full weight of that temptation when we give in to temptation. Jesus is greater than uh, the situations Old Testament prophets wrote about. They would write these stories about even a, a deliverer like someone like Moses in the Old Testament. They didn't realize that this was all pointing to Jesus. And then two weeks ago, I talked about how Jesus is greater than Moses and Moses was superior within Jewish community. There was angels and then Moses and then Jesus. And so he's building, the author of Hebrews is, is building their arguments here. And then last week, loving Jesus is greater than what previous generations were offered, that we can now see Jesus, that we don't have to wander in the wilderness anymore, that he is the promised one. So this week, uh, we're going to be adding another greater. What is Jesus greater than this week? Well, the, to start off the uh, conversation, uh, we're going to be looking at rest. And so uh, what, what, when you think of rest, what comes to mind? If I just, I just Google searched image and a couple of the first images that came up were animals because apparently, apparently people can't rest, uh, but you've got a cat uh, resting, a little puppy resting. All right, you've got, that, you've got a couple there on that couch. That doesn't actually seem restful. Once you get to my age and my weight, uh, if you put your hands behind your head on an uncomfortable couch like that, your arms are going numb. Uh, one of your ankles is going numb in that position. So I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of that. It doesn't seem restful to me. <laughs> uh, no one, no one's uh, showing off. He's like, I can, I can do this. No problem. Man. Um, and then the other one, right? Someone in a hammock. Again, my age and weight, I don't trust uh, hammocks. Uh, but I'm sure it would be restful if you opened up a book and had a cup of coffee. I, mean, I get that, right? But so what is it, right? So, so if, if you're in the chat, right, what, what, what comes to mind when you think of, of rest? Uh, and those of you here, I'm not going to just let you miss out. Let's go to some call and response. What's restful to you when you think of rest? Naps. Naps, Naps are good. We're going to talk about that actually uh, later. What? Hiking, right? Just getting out into the, into the wild, getting out into the wilderness. And these can be big things and little things. I was thinking of what would be restful this last year uh, for our 10th anniversary. Angel and I were, were going to go to, to Banff. Uh, in Canada, that got canceled just because of, of COVID. And to me, that, that's restful, right? You do some hiking, do some horseback riding even. Go, go on, a, on a lift and go up to a mountain and just see the beautiful views and sit by a fire and, and have, a, have, a, have a, uh, a beverage of coffee uh, or whatever, right? And just, be, just relaxing, right? Uh, just resting. But that could be little things, right? It could just be a cup of coffee. It could be, uh, bring, it brings joy to my, my soul, uh, when my, my oldest son, Henry, he falls asleep in his room with the lights on. Um, and so when he finally falls asleep, just going in there and just kind of tucking him in, turning the lights off and just seeing him completely at peace. And the only thing that he cares about is what are we going to do that's fun tomorrow? <laughs> you know what I mean, that's, 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 just, that's, that's so restful and, and peaceful to me. And it brings joy. Well, this week, this week though, in Hebrews chapter four, verses one through 13, I've entitled this sermon, Jesus is greater than rest. And I want me to spend the remainder of the sermon unpacking what I mean by that. But I will tell you this, that I was majorly convicted this week, uh, reading through this passage, studying this passage. And even on, on Mondays, we've been getting together with other pastors and some other uh, staff and just saying, um, uh, walking through the passage. And I was convicted in that moment. I actually said something. If those of you know Pastor Cor, you know, in a loving, kind way, rebuked me of, of my attitude towards, towards rest. 
and and looking at how this passage helps me. And and so I don't I don't know who you are. I mean, I know everyone's names in here. I don't know who everyone is online watching, but what I do know is that uh, I'm preaching this message to me today because uh, I need this. Uh, there's only been a few times, and no, you know, normally I get convicted throughout the week. And I feel like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm doing better with this in my own life. I feel like I've given this to Christ. Uh, but there's been a few times in my ministry preaching that I've been like deeply convicted from the pulpit. I remember a couple of years ago uh, talking with the prodigal son and just overwhelmed. The Holy Spirit just brings to mind, yeah, I'm taught, this is about you. You're the older brother. You're the spoiled little brat that only says me, me, me. What about me? And I could, I mean, I just kept talking. I don't even know what I was saying, uh, but just the Holy Spirit just convicting me deeply. And I know this is going to be one of those sermons for me. That as I was prepping it, as I know what I'm going to say, I'm preaching to myself that I need to be reminded always that Jesus is greater than rest. So let's go ahead and dig into this passage. And uh, what is pretty typical uh, of the author of Hebrews, and and they're going to do it a few times today, is starting off with the word therefore. And so when we see the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is it there for And so going back, again, looking at what Paul preached, I'm not going to do a whole lot, but he had this quote that I think sums up a lot of where uh, we were at last week that ties into where we're going to be this week. And this is a quote from Thomas Schreiner. It says, The Lord's wrath against his people was provoked by their continual wandering from him, by their failure to trust and rely on him. Right, they're in the wilderness. They just don't trust him. They, 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 they are, they walk across the, the, the Red Sea on dry land. They, Pharaoh's defeated and they don't trust him over and over and over. His anger reached a point where he took an oath pledging that they would not enter his rest. The rest here refers to the land of Canaan that was promised to Israel in the fulfillment of the covenant connected with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're going to talk about that, that promise, that oath today. In Canaan, the text alludes again to Numbers 14. The Lord has said that he would never see the land I swore to their fathers, and I swear that none of you will enter the land I promised to settle you in. The promise would be fulfilled for a later generation, right? Those who, well, with the second generation in the wilderness, but the wilderness generation would not enjoy the land since they rebelled against the Lord. So keeping that in mind, that's the therefore. Now let's talk about this, this promised rest. Therefore. Since the promise of entering his rest still still stands. The promise of entering his rest still stands. God made a promise. He made a promise to the Israelites. Something didn't quite work out. That promise still stands. If if God made a promise that we, that is those who follow him, would find rest, then it's still true. That when he makes a promise, when he makes a covenant, he keeps his word. One of my favorite stories to tell is, uh, is R.C. Sproul, uh, former theologian, a uh, man that I highly respected, it passed away back in 17. Uh, but he had this story where, uh, where he taught a lecture and someone came up to him and said, could you, could you sign my Bible and, and uh, give your life verse? And, and he, his response was, well, I, I didn't write it, <laughs> and, which is a great, great response. And the, and the student said, no, 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 I mean, just... I always just ask, you know, teachers and people I look up to to sign my Bible and give their life verse. And he said, oh, I don't know what a life, life verse is. What do, you, what do you mean by that? And I used to do this. When I was a kid, we used to go up to preachers and evangelists and say, sign my Bible, give life verse. Um, 
which is really odd now that I think about it. And yet that's, somebody was doing that to him. And he said, well, I don't even know what, a, what do you mean by life verse? And he said, what's your favorite verse of the Bible? And he was like, well, all of them. And he goes, well, no, I mean, you got to, you know, narrow down. And he said, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And R.C. Sproul said Hebrews. And he said, okay, well, what's your favorite verse then in Hebrews? What sums up everything? And he said, oh, okay, I get it. He said, well, it would be Genesis 15, 17. And so he signed Genesis 15, 17, and he goes back. And then he, and a student comes back the next day, and he asks R.C., and he says, I think you made a mistake. I don't think you meant what you wrote. Because Genesis 15, 7, 17 is just this passage where you have two different piles of flesh, of animal flesh and carcasses on the side. And it says something like a, like a fiery pot or a torch passed between uh, these animal bodies. And the student says, I don't think that's your life verse. And he goes, oh, yes, it is. He said, that's when God made his covenant with Abraham. That's when God said, I'm going to stake my own deity that I'm going to fulfill the rest of the promises in the rest of the story. That without that moment, nothing else happens. Because we get to things like this, God's making a promise of rest. And if God doesn't make that covenant with Abraham, if he doesn't hold true to his promises, then what are we doing? That he makes a promise and it stands always So moving on here in the passage, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Let's make sure that we don't miss out on this rest that has been previously promised. And so that's really what the author is going to try to do. Again, just building on top of previous arguments, he's going to, the author is going to keep doing this. Okay, let's, the promise was made, it still stands. Let's make sure that we don't miss it. Well, how do we miss it? How do we fall short? Can we fall short of not finding this promised rest? Continuing in verse two, it says, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. Okay, so, so good news. This is just uh, gospel. That's what gospel means is good news. Uh, Evangelion of just this idea of, of, of good news, of the gospel being preached. It's the same thing. So we have the gospel proclaimed to us just as they did, just as those in the Old Testament did. Wait, what, how did they have good, good news? Well, when we look at saints of old and they just say, did they believe in the promises of God? When God made a promise, made a covenant and said, believe in me, put your faith in me. That's good news. And when we look at our, the good news, that's a greater good news because of Christ. Where is our faith? It says, but the message they heard was of no value to them. Why? Because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So there's something about Faith, something about believing. Last week, Paul shared this quote from uh, Tim Keller. Uh, and after I put it together, I realized that's a really big picture of Tim Keller. So, uh, Tim, I know you're not watching, but if you are, I apologize. Uh, you look great, by the way. Um, anyways, Tim says this. Tim, like I'm on a first name basis. Uh, Pastor Keller says this. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your, of your faith that actually saves you. It's not the strength of it. What is my object of faith? Just like those in the Old Testament, what was the object of their faith? And I think back to the Passover. Think back to the 10th plague in Egypt, since we're talking about Moses and and we went through Exodus not that long ago. Looking back at this 10th plague, what happens? These families had to take an innocent, unblemished lamb. They took the blood and they painted it on the doorpost and the mantle. Because if they didn't do that, the death angel was going to come and was going to kill the firstborn son. 
So they paint the, the blood on the doorpost. Now, I can guarantee you that there were certain families inside that's depicted in this, in, this, in this scene here, this etching, that there were families that were probably having a party. There were probably families as, as they, they see the death angel approaching, as they see this, what other people might see as evil, they're resting, fully believing in the promise of God. Hey, we're covered by the blood and that death is gonna pass over us. Let's rejoice. Let's thank Yahweh. And at the same time, I can guarantee there were families that were cowering. There were families that were terrified. How, how, do, we, how do we know that this is actually gonna work? But what do they do? They still put the blood on the doorpost and the mantle and they have a little bit of faith. And guess what? The death angel passes over them because they still put their faith in God and Yahweh and his promise that if you do this, you will live. It's not the, uh, or excuse me, it's not, it's the object of my faith, not how much faith I actually possess. And that's the warning that the author of Hebrews is giving us here. Who is our faith in? What is the object of our faith? Or what is the object of our faith? So then, kind of one, there's a, there's a couple big questions that I have kind of going through this passage. One is, so what do we have to do then? Right, if, if we can fall away, what, what can we, we do to be assured that we have this rest that has been offered well, Jesus says it most clearly in Mark chapter 10. I'm not going to read the story, but the rich young ruler comes to him. It's a painting by uh, Heinrich Hoffman of this depiction of the story. But you have this rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and says, what, what, do I, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you lack three things. Sorry, he says, you lack one thing, but then he says, go do these three things. You lack one thing. I want you to sell all you have. I want you to give it to the poor and I want you to follow me. Nobody says, you lack one thing. What's the one thing this rich young ruler lacks? He lacks Jesus and he lacks faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. How do we enter into this rest? Now, we who have believed enter into that rest. Going back to the Old Testament, they they heard this good news of faith in God's promises. Rest was offered to them. We hear the good news of Jesus and rest is offered, but it's only true. That rest is only offered to those who believe. So again, the big question that's asked is then what is the rest that has been offered? What kind of rest are we actually talking about? Well, again, the author of Hebrews continues in verse three and says, now, we who have believed entered into that rest, just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger. I declared, uh, I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, what's interesting is God had previously said, you will enter rest. He goes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, you're going to enter into this land, this, this land of Canaan. You're going to find peace and you're going to rest where, the, where, the, where, where, where you, there's milk and honey. And there's going to be peace there. But something happens and, and the, the, the generation that gets to Canaan, they don't believe and they're forced out. And so God makes an oath and he says, they're never going to find my rest. And yet, continuing on, and yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere 
uh, he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and I love that. There's a couple times where the author of Hebrews does this somewhere. It's not to say that it's not to say the author of Hebrews doesn't remember where it was written. That's clearly not the case. So whoever penned these words in the, in the book of Hebrews knows the Old Testament very well, uh, better than I do. That's for sure. Because I'm like, why would they say that there? I'm very confused. I got to do a lot of study. Just oh, that's why. But I love that they're not saying they're not trying to take focus away from Moses. They're just trying to put it on God. All right. So somewhere it was said. In these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all of his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So this is multiple times. It said last week by Paul in, in the passage he was looking at, chapter three. And again, multiple times, they shall never enter my rest. But he made a promise. And yet, what's this about works and resting and God resting? And so, so what is, what, what is rest? Is it kicking, is it kicking my feet up? Is it having a cup of coffee? All right, is, is it, is it get, having a vacation, getting a day off maybe from, from my kids screaming at me? Right? What, what is rest? Because that's what I think of. So continuing, the author then says this in verse 6, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, right? the promise was made. Right? We already said this. Therefore, there's another therefore in here. Promise was made. It still remains some will enter that rest. And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in to their rest, which I'm going to talk about because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did a long time later when he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, and he's quoting this verse again. Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts for if Joshua had given, uh, given them rest, God would not have spoken a, later about another day. Okay, what's the author he was doing? They're just building their argument. They just keep, they just keep going. So we just got to follow his train of thought or his train of thought here. Therefore, if there's a promise, God made this promise to Moses and Joshua, rest for his people. Paul talked to us a little bit last week, but we have these spies that go into Canaan. There's, there's 12 spies. And so Joshua sends these 12 spies. They go into this promised land, the land that God promised Israel, that you're going to find rest here in peace. And you're going to build your cities and you're going to relax. And you're finally not going to be wandering. You're not going to be enslaved. You're going to be at peace in this land. And there's, song, and there's a song that I used to sing when I was a kid. Imagine that. Um, you know this one? 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad and two were good. What do you think they saw at Canaan? Ten were bad and two were good. Some saw giants big and strong. Some saw grapes with clusters long. Some saw God was in it all. Ten were bad and two were good. Okay, cheesy. And yet, I remember it. And yet, why? Because the spies go, ten bad spies. Ten were like, we can't go in there, man. There's giants in this land. We can't fight this. We can't, we can, there's no way we could win this battle. You just walked through the wilderness you just saw the Red Sea split. You just, all these different miracles. You saw the 10 plagues. They get to Canaan. They get to the land that was promised and rest. And they go, we can't go in there. There's not a chance. And yet they know if we just got this land, we would have rest. But I'm not going to believe the promises of God. Okay, so that's what's happening. So the author of Hebrews is saying, God promised Moses and Joshua rest for his people. But... They don't find rest because they disobey. But then David, thousands of years later, says, today we will find rest. That's after Canaan. Matter of fact, David is living. He's a king in that area. 
So what happens that they physically, 40 years later, go in there, they kick out the giants, they kick out the Ammonites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Amalekites. They do all these different, they, they kick them all out and they claim this land and they have rest for a little while. And David is saying, we're not there yet. We haven't found that rest. We need this today. And so the author of Hebrews is again saying, God promised Moses and Joshua, they rejected it. David says today, even though it's thousands of years after Canaan, therefore rest for today still applies. That's his logic. God made the promise. They didn't have rest. They didn't have rest. Rest is offered to us, to those who believe. Donald Hagner says this in his commentary, the first and major part of this chapter is a continuation of the interpretation of Psalm 95, 7 through 11, which is what Paul preached from last week. From the preceding chapter, our author begins by stating that the promise of entering God's rest still stands and is offered to God's people. This rest is a kind of spiritual rest. The spiritual counterpart of what, possess, of what possession of the land was meant to picture. Security, contentment, profound satisfaction, and peace. That's what was physically offered to the Israelites, and they rejected that because they didn't put their faith in God. And now this spiritual reality, this spiritual counterpart, this spiritual rest of security, contentment, profound satisfaction, and peace. So, as the author then continues, there remains then a Sabbath rest. Sabbath is just the Hebrew word for rest. So there remains a, a rest rest for all the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest, as he did on the days of creation, rest from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the example of what? Disobedience. What's the disobedience? They didn't believe. They didn't have faith. They didn't trust. And so for me, again, I'm preaching on myself. I, I think we, especially as Americans, have a very, very bad and a huge misconception when it comes to rest. Because the rest that we are freely offered in Jesus is far greater. It is exceedingly greater than anything that this world has to offer. Anything that popped into your mind, this is what rest is for me. If I could just go do this thing, if I could be in this place, if I could just have this thing, and then I would finally have rest. Jesus is greater than that rest. Jesus is both greater than rest and Jesus is the rest. He is the rest that we crave so deeply in our souls. Jesus already said on the cross, it is finished. So why do we think we have to work and do something to enter into the rest that is the good news of Jesus Christ that is faith and belief in him? I can't do anything more. It's finished. And now we get to rest, rest. I mean, where am I going to go when I die? What's going what's to happen to my family if I leave? All these questions that give anxiety and grief 
rest in the finished and completed work of Christ. Because we try to do something to try to make our rest more restful. It's, I, I don't know why this analogy popped in my head, but it did, and so I'm gonna just run with it, okay? It's kind of like a NASCAR race. I think I've watched like 10 minutes of NASCAR in my life, but for whatever reason, this is what popped me up. Any NASCAR fans in here? No? Yeah, didn't think so. It's like a, it's like a NASCAR race though, and, and, and someone drives the, the 500 miles however many laps that is, and they, they do all these, and they, they finish the race. It's finished, and you're on the pit crew. And they, the way the race has already been won, run, won, and so you run over there, and you start pushing the car from behind. <laughs> I, I, can, I can help. I can help you go a little further. No, no, it's, it's done. I already won. What do, you, what do you think you can do? You can't do anything. We just need to rest in the finished work of Christ. Now, does this mean that we should never take a break? Does this mean that we shouldn't rest the way that we maybe would think of rest? Maybe this isn't, as the author of Hebrews clearly here is talking about a, a spiritual rest. Does that mean we shouldn't take a physical rest? No, but that's a different sermon for a different day. Because we can see from Scripture, there are multiple times where Jesus uh, goes out for some solitude, some isolation to get away and pray and to think and meditate on God's word. That happens. And there's a time, I've seen this t-shirt in several places, Jesus took naps, be like Jesus. Um, and they're talking about Mark chapter four, when he's in the boat and falls asleep on the boat. Be like Jesus, take, take, take a nap, <laughs> right? I don't think that's wrong. It probably could be to a, to a point, to a fault. There's nothing wrong with recharging our batteries. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and yet our goal in life shouldn't be relaxation rest. It should be soul rest in the fact that God and Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit have given me full rest. So then kind of the last big question, how can I know if I'm at rest? How do I know? How do I know if I'm, if I'm actually resting or not? Well, the author, author of Hebrews continues, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Uh, this is a, a verse um, that if you grew up in the church or were navigators or King's Kids or Awana or any other thing, you probably had verses 12... Uh, or verse 12 memorized. It wasn't until this week, <laughs> every commentary, every person I talked to, I had never one time in my life made the connection that the word of God isn't just the Bible. It is the living flesh of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. For the word of God, Jesus Christ is alive and is active and he is sharper than any double-edged sword. He penetrates even to dividing the soul, the spirit, the joints, the marrow, that judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. We say, well, it's, there's neuter pronouns in there, but then it shifts here to masculine because it's all about Jesus. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Why? Because there is the word of God. Everything is uncovered covered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give 
an account. What is the account, right? Kind of those jokes, right? You, you, you know, that you die and, and you go to the pearly gates and, and Peter's standing there and he asks the question, why should I let you in? What is the account that we must give? The account is, I have nothing to offer. I got nothing. I only have faith and, and it wasn't a lot of faith. And Paul mentioned this last week, I believe, but man, help my unbelief. I gotta have faith in Christ. He's the only thing that I'm clinging on to. We can't begin to say, yeah, but I went to church every week. I went to church when it was negative 35 wind chill. That's gotta count for something. It better count for something. No, I, I gave my time. I gave my money to this and to that. I started this organization. I ran a marathon to raise awareness about this thing. This has to mean something. And Jesus is going to look us in the face and he's going to say, yes, but did you find rest in me? You're just trying to do all these things. You're pushing the NASCAR after it's already run the race. It's finished. Rest. Because nowhere in scripture does Jesus say, believe in me. And you're going to have a chill life, man. You're not going to have any worries and anxieties. Now, what he does say is when you do worry, when you do have anxiety, cast your cares on me. He does say explicitly in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, 30. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus here is not talking about a vacation. He's not saying, get, come to me and guess what? I'm going to make your life worry-free. He's saying it can be that way if you rest your soul in me. My yoke is easy. And in context here, he's talking about the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are trying so hard to, to, to work out the law and say, I got to do this. I got to do this. And Jesus here said, it's finished. You take my yoke and rest your soul. So in conclusion, what or who are you trusting in to find rest? This is such a, this, this was such a conviction to me. Leaning more to the what, what's the next thing, what's the next step in my life? I can think back and I know everyone in this room can. And even though there's not that many people here, I'm still older than the majority of you. We can think back and we can remember this. If I just graduated high school, it'll be easy. I'll find rest. If I just had a car, I didn't have to ride a bike or ride the bus, I'll find rest. If I just get a, if I just get a degree, I'll find rest. If I just find a spouse, then I'll, then I'll be rested. If I, if I just pay off that stupid car, 
then I'll find rest. Then I'll be able to spend that money in ways I want to spend it. If I, if I just was able to pay off my student debt from that degree that I got that I don't even use anymore, then I would find rest. If I just had kids with my spouse, then I would be complete. I would be satisfied. I would be protected. All these different things that was the promise of old that we think we can manufacture, we'll find rest. If I just bought a house, if I just had some stability with that, if I just paid off the loan of said house, if I just was able to make my children's life a little bit easier than what I had growing up, then I could have rest and they'll have rest. If I could just pay off their debt, then they could rest and I could rest. If I could just retire and stop having to go to the daily grind, then I could finally rest. And when our our bones are old and weary and we say, if I finally would just die and give up the ghost, then I will know true rest. That sounds miserable. And yet that's been me always waiting for the next step. And Christ here is saying, I am the rest that you so long for. And that second point, do you need to rethink your definition of rest? I know I do. We need to find that rest in our souls of knowing Jesus and knowing that he has us safe and secure. In a moment, we're going to have communion. And uh, communion, what a great time to reflect. Great time to remember what it is that Christ has done where he said, it is finished. He called his shot. He made a promise. I'm going to shed my blood. It's going to be a mark of this covenant with you. That I am that I am. That we made all these promises. That everything in the Old Testament is about me. We're celebrating this Passover meal to represent the death angel, death passing over his people. I am saying, I am that lamb now. And I freely offer this to you. You just got to believe. You just got to hold fast to me. You got to put your faith in me. So that when that day comes and you have to give an account, you just say, it's Jesus. I can't do anything else. And we get to drink the juice and take partake of the bread, the bread that represents his body that was broken for us. And we get to remember that it is finished. Now rest. I always love um, Andrew picks songs every week to, to sing. We don't talk about what songs we're going we're gonna to do this week. And my, the, the thing that I love about the songs that we do sing is they're all very Jesus-focused and gospel-centered. And so as long as they're about Jesus, we can't go wrong. But this week he... Uh, picked I Need the Every Hour by a woman named Annie, Annie Hawks. This is a really cool story about this. It's a song well-known to him, very popular hymn of when it was first written, uh, even to this day. I Need Thee Every Hour. And Annie Hawks, actually, when she wrote it, she, wasn't su- she was very surprised that it, it went viral, <laughs> right? That, that so many people loved her hymn so much because she, in the moment, was on a mountaintop. She was happy. She was happily married. She had, her husband had a good job. She had kids. She was just on the, just everything. But she wrote this hymn of, I need thee every hour, even when I'm on the top of the world. I need Jesus. I still need to find rest in Jesus when everything's going good. But then her husband died. And then she wrote and she said, now I get why people love this hymn so much. That when you're in the, in the top of the world or in the valley, 
of saying, I need you every hour and I've got to put my rest in you, period. The other hymn is, Thy will be done. And there's a stanza in this that is so hard for me to sing every week. And not every week, we don't sing it every week, but every time we do sing it, I struggle with this. It says this, I forget the third stanza or something like that. It says, if thou, if thou should call me to resign, what most I prize was never mine. I only yield thee what is thine, thy will be done. And today, singing this, I'll be brought to tears because every time I hear this song, I think of my family. I think about my boys. I think about my unborn baby girl. I think about my wife. And I think, if God, if you should call me to resign that which I prize most, could I say it was never mine? Could I yield to God what was actually his to begin with and say, thy will be done? If everything was taken to me like from Job, would I still be able to find rest knowing I am safe and secure in the hands of Christ as he whispers into my ear, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the author of Hebrews, whoever they were. I thank you that that you have given rest. I thank you for your spirit that has so deeply convicted me this week. And I pray that you would help me to move beyond just conviction. That you would move me to belief. You'd move me to action and actually find rest, not have to do this, not look, not look forward to the next thing in life or the next step and that may bring me joy, but it's not rest. Only you can offer that. Rest for my soul because your burden is easy. So God, I pray for everyone in this room, everyone watching online that might've been in a position where I was, I am, of a lust for worldly rest, would you help us to repent of that and to find grace to help in a time of need and to find rest in our Savior who so badly, eagerly desires for us to find rest in him as he bears our burden for us. And it's in his most beautiful name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.